Hello and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, EJ Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a donor-led virtual tour of the grant-making process. Donors walk us through how they find potential organisations and ultimately decide to fund them. Today's person in philanthropy is Susan Treadwell of the Open Society Foundation. Hi Susan and welcome. Hi EJ, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to have you here as well. Uh, do you want to do an introduction and tell people who you are besides Susan Treadwell? Sure, I'm Susan Treadwell and my professional role is as Deputy Director for the Open Society Initiative for Europe, which is part of the big Open Society Foundations Network. But who I am is, um, I think first and foremost, I'm uh, a mother of two and I've got two young boys. I live in Barcelona. I have the great fortune of being an American. You can probably hear from my accent. I am Korean American, raised in California in the Bay Area, where I think my, um, my commitment to human rights and social justice was born. And uh, I am a born-again feminist, discovered feminism fairly late in life and uh, a fairly new advocate for racial justice being a minority woman myself and just having also discovered relatively recently that I think I've been a white supremacist for most of my life and I'm trying to um, bring myself out of that. So there have been a lot of awakenings in the, in the recent past and I think many of us are going through similar awakenings and decolonization of our, of our own thinking, recognizing that um, the, the biases that we hold from the air and water that we've been steeped in and raised in and breathe, uh, analyzing and thinking about that much more critically. Now, you know, I can't let you go without sort of unpacking that white supremacy uh, comment there, just so people understand what you mean by that. Can you just go into that a little bit more? Sure. So I uh, am Korean by birth. My family moved to the United States when I was fairly young, about four years old, and I was taught as a good Asian um, American to really just fit in and do whatever I needed to, to become accepted, and I became a true believer in the American dream, and I became a, a Europhile. I loved all things European, and everything that I was taught in school and what I believed and held very true for most of my life was that everything good in the world came from Western civilization. The arts, literature, music, architecture, science, medicine. Um, and I never learned about other parts of the world. And I really wasn't all that interested. And looking back, I find, um, I recall that I was often the person in the conversation who was apologizing for racism because I just didn't, you know, I, I was part of the model minority, didn't really want to make anyone uncomfortable. Um, but it is only in fairly recent past that I have realized I was playing the role of apologizing for racism and it was because I, I, I kind of was a white supremacist. You don't have to be white to be a white supremacist. Really? And that's the message that I, that I think it's important that people understand. It's not just the Ku Klux Klan and people who are really just nasty, hateful individuals. Um, it is, this is the world that we live in. And even when you are in East Asia or in Africa, it is very possible um, that those who hold power and those people believe that those who hold power should hold power. They deserve to hold power for some reason. And, and that's um, something that we need to start unpacking. Before we sort of get into the tour, the virtual tour, this is your chance to do a shameless plug. Mm. So plug something that you're particularly proud of or you just want to gush about unabashedly. You're, this is your oh, spot. Okay, so uh, there are 
two, two things. Oh, no, you want no. two? I, yeah. I guess I can, we can make space it's, for two. It's so hard to choose only one. So the first thing that I would love to plug is, I think, a growing trend in philanthropy, which is, um, it follows with uh, a trend that we're seeing in societies where there is more demand for participation. And, and the... My mantra, one of my mantras has been nothing about us without us for a number of years since I began to learn about the disability rights movement. And one of the things that is so inspiring about the disability rights movement is having worked with a number of um, marginalized communities who are advocating for their rights, oftentimes the demand from these groups has been that they want a seat at the table. And uh, to, to be able to have an influence in deciding what the policies are around ensuring equality and justice for their groups. With the disability rights community, um, the message has been less that they want to seat at the table, but the table is all wrong, that the table needs to be switched, and it is the world that needs to change in order to provide real equality and justice to, to everyone. And I think um, it, it also just resonates with, with everyone who has a sense that they should be consulted if there are going to be decisions made about their lives. And I think what most people, concept. exactly, I think most <laughs> people feel that way and would agree. Um, so participatory grant making is a growing trend and there is an enormous amount of interest in just pushing the power down about how philanthropic resources are allocated to people who are directly impacted by the injustices that we are trying to fight. And so it is about philanthropy giving up some level of its power in order to actually empower communities to come up with the solutions for the problems that they are living. And so I'm very excited about the growth and, and rise of, of participatory grant making. Um, we were involved in setting up a participatory fund for European activists called uh, Fund Action, and it's in, now it's in its second year of operation. Um, and it's an experiment, it's a test, and we are iterating as we go, but it's really exciting how a number of funders have come together who are all sort of on the same page about the need for us to give up some of our own power in order to build a power base outside. The second thing I want to plug is um, is an initiative from an organization called the New Economy Organizers Network. And they have set up what they call a spokespersons network, which is helping in the UK to have different voices in the media representing progressive issues and causes. So whenever a journalist has a hard time coming up with a progressive voice on tax justice or a progressive voice on um, housing policy, they are training up local activists uh, and really placing a focus on having people of color be represented. And they have um, now, they, they've been in operation for several years. They've been successful in booking over 900 media bookings. And we're talking about print, radio, television, BBC Guardian, so all of the, wow, okay. the mainstays. And very, um, very effective at diversifying the, the the images that people see as represented as experts, which is hugely important, but also the, the having a number of different voices from different parts of British society. Um, so that is an inspiring project that I would just love to see copied among a number of countries because you know I, I think all of us are tired of seeing the same old talking heads on our news programs and actually hearing from people who 
have some experience in um, some lived experience of the issues as well as expertise to bring to offer to the public is really important in, in helping people to understand what the really complicated nuances of issues are. And you mentioned replication there as opposed to the one of the sort of seven deadly sin words of scale. Mm. And can you just talk a about the difference for you between replication and scale? Yeah, scaling um, I think is based on an assumption that you can take one idea and that it can be transferred onto a number of different contexts. And I think that the better analogy is 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 grafting. So if you think about the way apples have spread around the world, you had, um, you know, in the original apple, uh, which then in order to spread had to be grafted onto another plant and it became its own variety based on the soil and the conditions in that context. And then now you've got, you had at one point thousands of different varieties of apples. They're all apples, but they are different based on the soil and the context and the environments that they're grown in. And I think that the same, we have to approach um, initiatives that we, we are too often looking for a silver bullet. And there is, um, there is real value in sharing, but the need to accept that every context is different, that needs are different, and that um, what you're going to, what the needs are for people to, to feel that they have some ownership and stake and, um, and autonomy in building their own solutions, that's also hugely important, and that's going to look different every place you go. Brilliant. Uh, so without further ado, uh, I'd like you to start the virtual tour. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about Grantee X, who's running a non-profit on police reform in the UK or running something in, in a smaller context who thinks that OSF might be a good funder. What's the steps that they take to find you or you take to find them? So yes, it does go both ways. Um, we have two sort of main approaches that we take in our funding, and one is field support, where we're just trying to support fields to have the power to, to advance change in their in their sector. So if it's police reform, um, we also take a slightly, we have a little more agency in setting concepts where if we have an idea for the change that we want to make and finding the right partners in order to make that happen. Um, so if a grantee wants to find Open Society, they can find us through our website. There is a, a link for grantees to see whether there are open calls that they might be eligible for. Um, we are a large, complex, decentralized network with lots of different programs that work at both the thematic level and the geographic level. But because our origin is in Europe, many, many, many of our programs are operating in Europe. Um, so figuring out who, which programs are working on police reform is not the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Um, one, one easy step that I would recommend is to reach out to the, the regional office, which is, is my office, OSIFA, and um, we, we can help you navigate the space. And what's that next step? Let's say I reach you, I call out to you and say, okay, uh, I think that you can be a great funder for us. What's the language that I should be using that's going to attract you towards us? So what should I be directing you to? How much information is too much information? Mm, mm. What, what are those early steps there? That's a good question, yeah. It's always hard um, cold calling, but in fact, police reform has, o has traditionally been a priority area for open society 
in almost every geography. Um, the abuse of power, the abuse of force is something that we um, see as a, a major human rights abuse that needs to be addressed and tackled everywhere. So we're working on it through a number of different programs. There are a number of different pockets that can be tapped. Uh, and I think that the, the right approach is going to depend from program to program and actually, unfortunately, it, <laughs> from program officer to program officer. So if there is an open call for applications and there's a formal process, then and, and you're eligible for that, going through that avenue is, um, you know, that's an easy way to go. But I always advise people to do their research. Understand what the priorities are of the program that you're reaching out to. Um, try to find out who the responsible person is who is covering that beat on police reform. Um, and perhaps, you know, if you're really going to do a deep dive, look at their at their background. Uh, what type of work have they been engaged in around police reform? Uh, and then to send, um, actually, the best advice is to let other funders do your work for you. So if you have a funder who you have a particularly close relationship with, who can speak on your behalf and approach another funder, I think that's probably the best um, strategy. But if you don't have that to rely on, then, um, then asking, sending perhaps a short one-pager about who you are and whether and asking whether or not you'd be eligible for funding is um, is probably the, the second best. I, I hear some nonprofits in the back of my head saying, "Okay, do your research." Does doing your research mean a Google search or hiring Sherlock Holmes to actually do that <laughs> research? So uh, I know sometimes we say, "Oh, go out and do your research," but. We're not always so uh, open on this. I mean, open society might be a bit yes. more open, but sometimes the information is not there on the web. That's very true. Yeah, we have a problem with transparency in, in the philanthropic sector. Um, and it is really difficult to find out who is responsible for what line of activity. And some of that uh, obscurity is by design. But, um, but I think that you know, picking up the phone is also a good way to go, if, particularly if you're not getting an, a response to your emails. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is there is more activity going on than there is, are available resources to deal with it. And so you know, program officers just have a hard time keeping up with the, with the demand. Um, so yeah, pick up the phone and try dialing a number and see if you can get some information about who would be right to contact. Okay, so I've picked up that phone mm. and, I've, and I've got to speak to you and you're on the phone, you're telling me all the great things and we've made those steps, uh, those first steps, you like my one pager and that's great. What's that process from liking the one pager to finally saying, okay, we can start a grant process? What are mm. some of the things that you're looking for to say, okay, we can fund you and we want to fund you? And what are some of the red flags that pop up where it looks like it's going great? the harmonious relationship looks like it's appearing and all of a sudden something happens that you see that's a red flag. What are some of those things? So hmm. the first one would be what's the relation, what happens in between successful one pager to successful partnership? And what are some of the red flags? Mm. So Open Society takes an organization-based approach to funding, which means that we are looking to support um, healthy organizations that are going to be in the fight for the longer term rather than just discrete projects. And so we are one of the funders that takes a great deal of pride in providing core funding and flexible funding to organizations. We recognize that 
most of the the causes that we are involved in, these are long-term yeah. battles. These are marathons. These are not sprints. So uh, we need to ensure that there are healthy organizations that are going to be able to bring others on board, that are going to be able to communicate effectively, that have the right governance, that is challenging their own ideas. Um, and so we, if we like the introduction, we think that there is synergy between our strategy. Oh gosh, I've got a lot of jargon that I'm introducing into this. <laughs> <laughs> Most listeners will probably be used to so much jargon, but if I catch you saying something that I even don't know, I will ask you for a definition. So, uh, so if we think that you know there that there is compatibility between what your organization wants to do and what we want to achieve as well, then um, the next step could be to invite a concept paper on what uh, what you what needs you have for funding. And um, or it could it could go straight to a proposal. It really depends on a number of factors. Uh, and we also are are quite different from other foundations in that we have devolved grant making decision making to our program officers, which I think has been a really nice move yeah. because oftentimes program officers can hide behind their boards um, and say that you know we really like your proposal. But we can't let you know, give you one way or the other an indication whether this funding is going to be forthcoming because the board is responsible for making the decision. I, I think it's not a secret that in many, many foundations, the program officers have a great deal more autonomy um, than they Just let outed. on. All of these program officers are all coming <laughs> after you now. <laughs> Our, our, our uh, president, our pre previous president who introduced this practice felt it was important for grantees to know that they were speaking with someone who had some decision-making authority. Of course. And, uh, and I also think that entrusting program officers, giving them responsibility, also creates a line of accountability that um, in many foundations is not very clear. So the program officer responsible for that uh, program that is doing police reform work can make a decision about whether or not um, they want to support it, whether it's in line with their, their strategy, and whether they have, um, there's a fairly detailed process that is involved, uh, that involves looking at the organization, the organization's health, governance, reputation for effectiveness. It's what I say when, when we look at organization um, and we fund organizations, there is a lot of due diligence on our part to see whether or not this organization is healthy. And not all organizations are perfect. Every, every organization has its flaws. But it's important that we um, do the work to try to see what those flaws are, because ultimately the goal is to leave an organization stronger after our funding than before we started funding it. So having a good understanding of where are there, where the, there are areas where we might be able to help strengthen that organization is very important. And the red flags for you, as opposed to the flaws, which there is a difference there, and you can mm. even touch upon the difference or just go straight into the red, uh, the red flags for you. Oh, so I'm not sure whether I understand what you mean by red flags. What During the process, sometimes you'll see that maybe the, the finances are not the way you want them, or mm. the budgeting, or maybe just organi organizational structure is not the way that you want it to be. Mm. Uh, some of the, just thinking of my days in philanthropy where we were so close to doing a grant, we just realized that where they went to put that money wasn't necessarily where we thought it should go. Mm. And we were having those discussions and saying, okay, we'd really like it to go in this area. And they were like, no, we really want to go there. And at the end of the day, that was a deal breaker for us. Mm. Or 
in terms of just structure of the organization where we thought there was too much, there was too top heavy and mm -hmm, there was mm -hmm. not enough disseminating down to, as you say, program officers in philanthropy to more to staff on the ground where we thought there was just too much happening at the top level and if something happened at the top level, the entire organization would just cease to exist. We thought we sh there should be more decentralized in that way as well. Mm. So, you know, many of these things always change and our standards and what we're looking for in organizations are in flux and at the moment we are placing more um, um, importance on diversity, inclusion, building a support base that is actually going to allow them to have an influence on changing policy, on changing the way things are done in practice. So indicators that we look for for these things are um, whether there is diversity of representation on their staff, um, how decisions are made in that organization. So if an, org an executive director is running the organization as their sort of platform for um, carrying out their own agenda, that's a red flag. And that is something that we see all too frequently in NGOs. Um, whether or not there are mechanisms to actually challenge ideas that NGOs have. Um, be, they think they have a brilliant idea. Do they have ways to test that to see yeah. whether or not it will be effective and have the impact that they, they want to see? Are they engaging um, the communities that they are meant to be representing? In which ways are they doing that? Um, and uh, yeah, with, with boards, um, diversity, inclusion, uh, fundraising, whether or not they are sort of always operating on um, crisis mode and just doing with what they can or whether they're building something for the longer term. Uh, these, are, these are all s signals that we look for. If we don't see those things, they can be red flags, but not necessarily deal breakers. Well, thank you so much for that virtual tour. The next part is uh, mistaken identity. Uh, when a nonprofit or fundraiser sometimes mistakes you for a direct donor or a donor who can support their organization, which I'm sure happens a lot. So you're a donor, we work in Antarctica, can you fund what we're doing? What do you do to sort of set them right? Um, if you don't do it in the moment, what advice do you give them for moving forward in terms of how to sort of correct that mistake in thinking that you might be able to fund exactly what they fund or that you're someone who can just give them money in the moment? I think it's always just important to be honest and human with people. Um, I, I, it's, it's perfectly understandable to anyone that there is a limited amount of money and that foundations have to choose priorities and so under, uh, just explaining that I work in these countries or I work in these issue areas. I think that the work that you're doing is really valuable and important. Generally, what I'll tend to do is if I can think of other avenues of support, I can recommend um, that they contact other sources. Antarctica's tough, but there, you know, you don't have to be in Antarctica. Even <laughs> yeah. a small country um, where where we are currently in, in Northern Ireland or a country like Slovakia where it doesn't really make a blip on the geopolitical radar. Um, oftentimes these are countries that are, it's really difficult to find funding in. Uh, and so in those particular kinds of cases, my recommendation is for them to join forces with with um, with similar groups across borders and perhaps search out funding for cross-national projects. Um, but at mistaken identity, yeah, I think just honesty is probably the best policy. 
And you've already given me so many, but what are some do's and don'ts that you would impart to listeners, especially on the nonprofit side, in terms of what to do or what not to do when uh, interacting or engaging with a donor? Uh, I think my first big don't is don't ever ask a funder, what do you want us to do? That is uh, a very big no-no. And there are some personalities in philanthropy who like that power, um, but those are typically not the foundations that are going to be able to affect real change. So if you have a, a program officer or a foundation that is looking for people who have the ideas and the passion and the skills to be able to actually create some, some real um, power that's going to push forward change, that has to come from the ground. It's not going to come from foundations. The answers typically are, are going to be the best answers that are going to be sustainable, lasting, um, and have the most support are going to be the ones that come from those that are most directly affected. So we, I, I, I think many of us think of ourselves as talent scouts. Um, and if you can recognize real talent uh, that has and real promise, that's those are the types of people that you're going to want to work with. So don't ask what you what the foundations want you to do because a really good program officer, a really good foundation is is not going to pay you much much mind um, and you might have ruined that might be a really bad first impression. Perhaps another don't is um, the don'ts are always so popular. It's the do's that are always so uh, oh. difficult to to give. But uh, I'll let you if you if you can think of another don't, then feel free to to give it to us. Well, the do's are, as I said earlier, do your research, understand where you find where you're aligned, um, where you're compatible with a foundation. If you and uh, if you can find a foundation who has a similar um, set of ideas about how to push change forward and, and where those changes are going to be um, that is interested in long-term partnership, understands that this is a, a long-term engagement, um, cultivate that relationship. It's not just about seeking out a project here and a project there. It is about trying to form um, a longer-lasting relationship that's going to be uh, able to help build something um, to create change and momentum going forward. I'll give you the opportunity if you want to sort of squeeze in one more don't or I'll just move you right, uh, right along. Do know who you're working with. Um, so as I said, the relationship is really important, but um, do be generous. Uh, I think that the more you can show that you are able and willing and recognize the need to work with others, uh, and to share information, I think that really shows um, a quality that is all too lacking <laughs> in, in the sector and, um, yeah, that will have the potential to build um, partnerships and momentum and trust. Just thinking about some of these do's and don'ts and, uh, and your experience, you talked about having 16 years experience uh, in, in the field. What are some of the experiences, uh, the highs and lows that you remember, that you recall, that you'd like to share? Mm. I think that I first recognized the power of being a funder just through having conversations um, 
working in a particular country where I, I knew the actors very well and I sort of scratched my head and questioned why there wasn't more um, strategic litigation, strategic legal active activity, because the organizations were great, there were lawyers there, but they hadn't seemed to pick up on this as a potential tool that they could add to their toolbox. Uh, and whereas neighboring countries had this and they were using it very effectively, and it was actually pushing forward real policy change. And through just conversations and asking questions of the NGO actors there, why they thought this was a missing piece, or what was the barrier to, um, not, not only the barrier, but whether they had thought of this, whether they thought that this could be something that could work, and talking to other litigation groups about why Croatia was missing in the landscape of, of this type of activity. Um, it was really through these just sort of uh, casual questions that others started to talk to each other and uh, a program developed to train a network of lawyers and an NGO really took it on as their own and we we had an interest and so it was a it was a very convenient marriage so I recognized that there was a great deal of power and influence that I had as a funder fairly early on in my career um, and probably at that point needed to have a bit more humility um, but fortunately I don't think that I, I crossed the, the barrier of being a, a donor who was pushing a, a particular agenda so d this was not a donor driven initiative I believe um, but in recent years a lot of lessons I have taken from the marriage equality movement and learning about the role of the funding community in um, in helping the, the field to coalesce around an issue that was going to help create a, a massive shift in a massive social transformation in a number of countries. And the way that uh, funders came together to support building the movement and the institutions and the structures that would be required for this longer term um, cause to win has given me another perspective. And, um, and so it's it's something that I have tried to apply some of the lessons to in Europe, and that's at a fairly nascent stage. Uh, the, other, the other big high point is around participatory funding and the excitement around that having been generated by the first participatory funds that I learned about, and then finding some other like-minded funders who really were willing to cede some of their own power in order to um, to create this mechanism that would be responsive to the, much more responsive to the field and a test of our own commitment to democratic decision making, uh, and just having the process of setting this fund up be one of the one of the easiest and one of the most rewarding experiences that I've had because we all came together um, and had a larger group of of social activists who helped design the process and design um, how we could prototype this fund and then sitting together with a smaller subgroup we hashed it out and the way that we each sort of took a role and um, you know we had someone who was who was very experienced in tech we had someone who was very experienced in another participatory fund we had a number of funders and the decision making was all so easy because we were so committed to the value principle um, the biggest bone of contention was how to limit the role of the funders because one 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 of our party um, 
was just sure that if you gave a funder an inch, that we would take a mile. So if you no. gave a formal role <laughs> to a funder in any of the decision making, even if there wasn't, um, you know, just one person out of seven, that we would take more space because that's what we are accustomed to. As the biggest bone of contention was how to cut the funders out entirely while still taking advantage of the expertise that we have in grant making. Um, so that, that it was really interesting that that was the biggest fight that we had. It takes a lot of humility had. as well. Yes, yes, it was really rewarding. And so with that, I'm moving to one of the final areas, it's the question and answer area um, for well, you quite know, I'm actually outing you. I don't know if it's okay that I'm outing you as one of the participants of the conversation, one of the anonymous thousand donors. Oh, happy to be outed. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I did that accidentally, so I apologize. <laughs> but as you know, uh, we had questions that were put to donors from nonprofits anonymously. And I'm sort of continuing that theme here. Uh, a couple of questions will come from the book. They're questions that I've heard people want to hear other answers from. But also, I've, I have a question uh, for you from someone who's actually sought funding from you. So, first question. While some donors are interested in early stage organizations, usually the first three years, very few have a focus in supporting adolescent organizations, usually between five to nine years old. Why not focus support on organizations that have proven some impact, but need funding to get to the next level? Starting an organization is not the hard thing. Building a sustaining one is. Yeah, I find that question really interesting because um, it, in my experience, it's much harder to seek funding to, for a startup. Uh, we as a funder have typically been more interested in funding something that is already established, even if it's young. Um, but has something that has a track record, at the very least, and has an identity, um, is much safer investment than something that's a startup because all of the questions and uh, all of the processes that you need to set up, the governance, the strategy, how do you make your mark, how do you set your, um, your agenda, how do you develop a funding base, all of those questions for a more, a, more adolescent organization are already established. So it seems, I would think that you know, funders tend to be more risk averse. If you have something that has a track record, it's easier to fund than something that's a startup. But you know, perhaps I'm only speaking from the perspective of a larger institutional foundation. Um, but yeah, if there are other foundations that find it easier to fund startups, I think that we need to have a variety of approaches. So if there are those that are w more willing to fund startups and then the more established institutional ones are more willing to fund in the junior adolescent phase and there are the even more conservative funders <laughs> like the longer term established uh, groups, that's that's fine. <laughs> you hit upon something that I just want to sort of uh, expound upon a bit and the governance, the, the structure. I don't think that many nonprofits, especially many startups, understand that there are donors who actually fund that work for you. You don't necessarily have to have that figured out before you go to a donor. And mm -hmm. um, I know some, there are a lot who try to get that stuff sorted out beforehand and they actually waste a lot of time that they could be working on something, working more on the mm -hmm. mission, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to trying to find a way to structure that when they don't even have the money to be doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought it up because there are donors, and that's not necessarily like yourself, but probably more like we were at Induna, um, where we would fund the beginning uh, stages, early stages as well. Um, so you don't necessarily have to have it all figured out, which is just something I wanted to point out that you had there. Uh, on to the next question. 
Actually, Which, can I can I make a point there? Oh, please. You know, with with younger organizations or less well-established organizations, I have counseled. I'm not sure I should say this on the record, but I have actually counseled them to think very carefully about their governance because having a board is a lot of work. Yes. Um, and and managing a board can take energy and resources away from you having a flagship project that shows what you actually want to accomplish. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, I think it's important to think carefully uh, about what you want to do and uh, and other setting up the right institutional framework. Um, there's not going to be a right answer and, th and that framework will change. So being open to that is very important. I think that trying to figure out having the perfect board in the beginning is just, it's uh, an exercise in futility a bit. Mm, you know, yes. it really is just getting the key members that you need to move forward and then figure out who you are. You're going to change yes. as an organization so many times. Every good organization changes a few times. Every great organization changes many times. Yes. And it doesn't mean you change your mission, just changes how you actually operate towards getting that mission done. Yes. And you need to have a board that, that grows with you along that along those lines. And, yeah, so on to the second question, which actually comes from someone who's a, uh, who's tried to fund you or has been funded by you. Uh, you don't happen, you don't appear to have any women on your board. Uh, what steps are you taking to address that? It's a bit incendiary. I don't know if you actually want to tackle that one there. So th it's a complicated question because uh, we've got so many boards. We have so many programs and so many boards. But um, the most public board, the only governing board that we have is our global board. And we do have some women on that board. Now, one of the, one of the critiques that I have heard, um, and I think it's, it's perfectly legitimate, is that our, board, our global board has re relatively recently been um, restructured. And it used to be a fairly large board that has rep had representation from a number of different regions, and because the organization is in a period of transition, the board has been reduced to a smaller number, and so the representation is wanting. Um, there are, I think that there are three women on the board out of 12, uh, and for a global board, for a global foundation with a footprint that we have, the fact that there is no representation from anyone on the Global South is something that troubles a lot of people that I've heard from the field, um, and also, frankly, from myself and a number of other staff. We understand that this is a transitional board. There are plans to revamp the board. I, I don't know whether or not the issues around per having a diversity of perspectives um, around ge the geographies and the issues uh, and just diversity in general is a is a primary concern in constituting this new board, but I would hope so because it seems to be such a core component of what we're about. We're about open society, which is at, at its foundation um, has the, the idea that in order to solve really tricky, complex social problems, the best ideas are going to come from having a variety of different perspectives. And we're talking about perspectives in, in gender and in race and in experience and in age and in class. Um, so I would hope that we would try to stay true to that. Uh, and we would be able to see that in our board. Uh, that was a tricky question. It seems you actually, it's an incorrect question. You do have women on the board, so yes. that's good to know. <laughs> Maybe the, the person asking was looking at some other information there. Uh, the final question in this area is uh, more of a philosophical one. Is philanthropy an art or in science? 
It's absolutely not a science. It is an art, um, but an art that is messy, uh, and it has many, many different modes. Um, it's about humans and human society, and there is, it's almost impossible to have exact sciences uh, when you're talking about human beings. You know, we're still we're still learning so much about how we function. There's a, re there's a really useful framework that uh, an, an advocate of, of a friend of mine uh, taught me that I find super helpful. And it is breaking down your spheres of control, your sphere of influence, and your sphere of interest. And these are concentric circles. And your sphere of control is really only over yourself. And I argue that we even have very limited control over ourselves, because look at all of the things that we do that we know better <laughs> than to do. Um, so being you know, humble about how much influence you can exercise in your sphere of interest is very important. Uh, and there are, there, there are the science of science, even hard science, um, which doesn't involve human beings, our knowledge has shifted so much even in my lifetime. So what, I, what I learned about dinosaurs when I was a kid has completely changed. We, you know, I, my, my kids know things about dinosaurs that I couldn't even have imagined would exist in, in my childhood. So just being humble about what we can know and what we can change um, is really important. So in that respect, I just don't think that philanthropy, how we change society, could ever be considered a science. But um, the more we learn about ourselves, about human society, how it evolves, and how we can create social, help to push social transformation in, in the ways that will help to advance equality and justice, we're learning more and more. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, I want to sort of look towards the future before we, we end. And the idea of what we're meant to accomplish with philanthropy is not just stopping something that's happening presently, but really changing something in the future. So I wanted to ask you, what is something you would like to see philanthropy eradicate or cure in your lifetime, assuming that you live for another 100 years, of course? Mm. So there are lots of things. What I, um, what I, I don't think that philanthropy alone can cure or solve any problem. What I would love to see philanthropy take a lead on helping to solve is the current system of, of tax evasion and avoidance. And I think at the moment, philanthropy is as guilty as business in taking advantage of uh, the tax havens that are robbing countries of their tax base. So we're seeing social services being cut even in, in Europe, the, the richest countries in the world, because governments don't have the money. And I, and I think that solving for the, the funding for essential services to publics is really critical and tax is a really important part of that. So I would love to see philanthropy really start to take a lead in solving this issue, which is absolutely, it has to be done at a global level. And, and philanthropy is operating at a global level and has the potential to, to help the, the already burgeoning movements that have enormous public support. Every, every, I think everyone can agree that you need taxes in order to fund the things that we all care about in, and to create the societies that we want to see. But getting the changes in the laws and policies uh, to close the loopholes, to make 
those that have pay their fair share, that's a matter of political will. And I think philanthropy can help in building that. Well, that's a great look out outlook for the future there. Thank you for <laughs> joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for listening.